Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. It is Thursday, uh, May 6th, 2021. Um, I'm joined today, as I am on Thursdays, by the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Kevin, how are you doing? Bill, doing well, and it's good to be with you. Uh, I just look forward to this hour every Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Well, we look forward to having uh, you with us, uh, Kevin. Thanks for being with us. Um, we're also joined by Professor Andre Gillespie, uh, Professor of Political Science at uh, Emory University and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, which is uh, has its home at Emory University. Uh, Andre, thank you for joining us, especially since you're down to the end of the semester. You uh, said before the show and on the air, you told us finals are tomorrow. You're given your final. Yes. Yeah, so if any of my students are listening, you should study. <laughs> <laughs> uh, multiple choice essay. Uh, uh, I never I, do multiple, not multiple choice. Like, so there'll be short answers <laughs> and essays. And <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for taking time uh, to be with us today. I want to start with a, a story that clearly is getting a lot of attention, not just here in Georgia, but around the country. And, and that uh, Kevin Riley is the reinstatement uh, of uh, Atlanta police officer Garrett Rolfe, who, of course, is now facing felony murder charges in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. Um, he has been waiting to go to, on trial uh, for virtually a year uh, now. There is confusion about what uh, prosecutors are going to handle the case. Fonnie Wills in Fulton County doesn't want it. The Attorney General, Chris Carr, refused to uh, uh, honor her request to move it to a different venue. And, and so this entire case, to me, has become so mired in confusion that I don't know what to make of this latest decision that, uh, that Rolf was fired uh, uh, without getting due process. It, it, it's very complicated. And I'm wondering what signals it sends to people who are looking for racial justice and to those who are looking for a fair trial for Garrett Rolfe. Uh, you are right, Bill. It's all been very confusing and I think frustrating for a lot of people. So let's let's try to at least clear up the, fa the facts at hand so that people can maybe make their own decisions about how they ought to feel about this. So just like so many of us, our workplaces have rules or procedures or policies uh, to follow when someone's going to be fired, right? And in the case of a police officer, that procedure is set by a civil service board. In other words, cops are civil servants. So when they get fired, there is a process that has to be followed. And, you know, this kind of thing that happened where he's been reinstated, which, which really means in this case that he's on administrative leave. He's no longer fired and he's going to get his back pay. He's not patrolling or anything like that. But this is a very common thing that happens in these cases. Often it's a civil service board or civil service procedure 
But in a lot of places, it's, it's a union procedure where the complication of firing someone is even uh, greater in terms of uh, when a mayor or a uh, senior government official wants to act. So that's what really happened here is it's purely procedural. Civil Service Board said, Mayor Bottoms, sorry, you didn't follow the city's rules when you want to fire someone. Therefore, this firing is not legitimate. He's reinstated. It does not get at any of his actions or any of the charges he faces. Yeah, I don't think I did a very good job of setting this up. So let me go back a step, Andre Gillespie. Um, within 24 hours after Rayshard Brooks' uh, death uh, w- went viral because it, there was video of him being shot in the back, um, Mayor Bottoms announced that she was firing him summarily. He was offered an opportunity uh, to appear at a hearing, um, but it was given to him, he claims, and his lawyer claims at the last minute. He was an hour outside the city at the time. And so now the Civil Service Board is saying that Keisha Lance Bottoms acted inappropriately by firing him because he did not get due process. Nevertheless, he stands charged with felony murder. So what do we make of all this? Well, and I have a, a question for Kevin for clarification's sake, but to answer your question, Bill, um, you know, the rule is that somebody is supposed to get 10 days notice uh, before an action like this is taken. And by firing him within a couple of days, right, that, you know, sort of breaks the procedure. Um, and so procedures can be used, uh, you know, as, as, as weapons to try to, you know, obfuscate and obstruct. But procedures are also there to protect, you know, even the rights of perpetrators. And we do give the we do give perpetrators sort of rights and processes. And when we violate those, we commit unforced errors that allow certain things to happen. And and I think while Kevin is right that this isn't getting off on a technicality, this is right. It's going to look that way. And this is something that could have been avoided if the procedures were followed to the letter of the law in the first place. Like if you do everything right on your end, it actually further sort of, you know, sort of indicts and amplifies the the real issue that's at stake here, which is the murder of Richard Brooks. And public outcry, of course, was intense last summer. Um, There was violence. I understand Mayor Bottoms' desire to try to respond very quickly um, um, to this particular instance. Um, But on the other hand, how much better would it have been if she had explained, look, the rules say that, like, he gets a hearing. I got to give him 10 days notice. I'm giving notice now. In a week and a half, we will have sort of like the hearing where this gets decided. Um, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so I think it's important for folks to remember that even if you think that, like, history and truth are on your side and justice are on your side, right, you still have to follow the rules that the ends don't justify the means in this instance. Um, and so this is allowing this is allowing Officer uh, Rolf to have sort of this moment sort of a procedural redress that might sort of elicit sympathy sort of kind of in the public domain, which is definitely not something that, that uh, you know, I think the city or that people who, uh, you know, care about uh, the life of, of Richard Brooks would have wanted to have. And so it is an admonition to us all to just be careful about it. My question for Kevin is, is that, okay, now that he's being re- reinstated, he's now gotten this back pay, can you start the process, right? And so that's the thing that I've been somewhat unclear of from reading the report. If they gave him 10 days notice and set up sort of uh, everything that should have been done a year ago, 
could they go back um, and do it properly and then actually like summarily fire him at this point? Yes, I think that that is um, they can follow the procedure and fire him. I think, though, that here's where it gets complicated. Um, and I think it's a very tough call for uh, for someone like the mayor in the position she was in last summer, because what should you do? Do you think the public would have been satisfied with her standing up and saying, hey, we've got to follow a procedure. We have 10 days here that we have to stay calm and follow it. Very tough thing to stand up and say in the middle of all of what was going on last summer, especially when we again, we have uh, a society that's used to um, the most serious of uh, situations being wrapped up in about an hour long television show. Right. That's what we're used to. And. I, I, I think sometimes politicians make the judgment, I am better off firing this person in this moment than appearing to drag my feet, even though I know it will cost money later and it will cost some trouble later, because to appear to be doing nothing now is more dangerous than that than what happened here. I'm not saying that's what she did. or that's, mm-hmm. I, have, I don't know if that's a judgment she made, but I believe that judgment does get made. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not going to sort of debate here whether or not they're short-term political calculations. Um, on the other hand, though, um, you know, the test of true leadership is having foresight and having long-term planning. And what would you rather have, a firestorm then or a firestorm now when you're in the middle of a mayoral campaign where people are going to sort of use crime against you, right? So I'm not sure that that actually works out. Um, in the long term. And yeah, while I agree with you that not everybody would have accepted the explanation, how much better would it have been to have just been transparent? Look, I'm mad. I want to get rid of them. But the law says that I have to follow a procedure. So I'm telling you now, in 10 days, I'm asking for him to be fired per the procedure. It probably wouldn't have calmed everybody down. And I think that there are optics to do that. Like if she had said that with T.I. and Killer Mike by her side, like what would that have looked like uh, in that particular moment. I don't think it would have calmed everybody down, but at least she would have explained what's going on. And I think people don't need to be condescended to by having rash actions. If you explain, like, well, here are the rules, here's what the constraints that I'm operating under, you can at least try to manage expectations. And I think many reasonable people will give you credit for it. Um, you know, Before we get to a break, uh, yeah, I mean, part of the problem here, Kevin, is that this case was politicized from the start. Paul Howard, the district attorney in Fulton County at the time, was standing for re- a very tough reelection, um, and he very quickly indicted uh, Rolf on felony murder charges and was criticized heavily for not launching a more careful investigation. So one way or the other, Kevin— what, when people are calling out for racial justice on one hand and justice for Garrett Rolfe on the other, this whole thing has been mired in a in politicization that just has not helped anybody, it seems to me at least, Kevin. Well, yes, and I also think it stands as just a re- amazing and useful microcosm for what's going on in our country because as this case happened, we got information in bits and pieces we came to understand more as things have gone along, but we, I mean, I just don't know sometimes if we have quite the patience to recognize that these situations are never quite what they seem at the beginning. All right, we're going to watch how this case unfolds uh, in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, we are finishing up 
our spring pledge drive. We only come to you twice a year and ask you to help us support the work at uh, Political Rewind, at Georgia Public Radio. Uh, so I'm going to turn you over to folks who can tell you how you can do that. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Andre Gillespie, join me uh, today. Um, Andre, I think at a certain point, I'm going to try to look for a new phrase that says something similar to Georgia's at the center of the political universe again, Georgia's ground zero for national politics, uh, because we have been for so long now. And here's another example, Andre. Um, the, the GOP war on big business which has just grown and grown, really started right here in the state after the legislature passed and Governor Kemp signed into law the new election laws, which many people consider to be voter suppression, despite the fact that Republicans insist they're about voter integrity. And the minority leader of the U.S. House, Kevin McCarthy, and Senator Lindsey Graham were both in town for a big GOP dinner the other night, and they continued this uh, war against particularly Delta Airlines, the Coca-Cola company who spoke out against the law. Kevin McCarthy went up to a diner in Marietta um, where they're very concerned about the fact that uh, Major League Baseball yanked the All-Star game because of the election law. And here's just a little of what Kevin McCarthy said, and then I'll turn to you, Andre and Kevin, for a response. I wish Major League Baseball uh, would learn the lesson from this, to, to not make a rash decision, to make informed decisions to read the bills before they make judgment. This movement in this country about wokeness has got to stop. Um, we can disagree on things, but let's base it upon facts. What I really want that week, and for a lot of people that get an all-star game, that's Christmas for their business. That helps them go on to other months. I think Major League Baseball should find a way to make it up to this community because they made an uninformed decision and they harmed a lot of people who are out of work. Andre, it's fascinating. McCarthy's language there was pretty tempered, but some of the language has been really harsh. And there's something odd about hearing Republicans treat business the way they've, for such a long time now, talked about their Democratic opponents in the harshest of terms. What, what do you, give us your take on all this. Um, you know, well, I mean, I think the Republican Party is in the middle of a shift. Um, and so, I mean, it's the ideological shift uh, to the right, uh, you know, which should be noted that the Democrats are, are shifting to the left. Um, but there's also a shift in terms of sort of what issues are defining them. And so uh, the Republican Party that we once knew that was, you know, very pro-business, uh, pro-deregulation, the deregulation part is still there, but the idea of doing, you know, sort of everything sort of, you know, in line with business has fallen out of favor as, 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 as business leaders um, are taking sort of a greater voice in social issues because it, that's also good for their business bottom line. And so Kevin McCarthy's comments, I mean, I think, one, they fit this larger sort of, uh, you know, Fox News narrative. Uh, about what is getting discussed on, you know, the television shows and how people are perhaps rehabilitating their image 
by coming out against cancel culture and sort of citing the move by Major League Baseball as evidence of cancel culture. He's also tapping into, you know, what the AJC found was that, you know, this is a controversial decision that isn't necessarily sort of like universally phrased, right? People are actually pretty split uh, about this issue. And, you know, the thing that he's hoping for is that while it gets you great sound bites, it gets you invitations, you know, to show up, you know, on Fox News, particularly during primetime or on Fox and Friends, you know, what is the ultimate uh, sort of goal of this? And I think the barometer that businesses are going to use is what their bottom lines are. And so, you know, if Republicans or conservatives succeed in, you know, boycotting Major League Baseball and we see ticket sales decline, um, yeah, then perhaps uh, the Republican leadership is justified in taking this particular stance. But that's a big if, and we have to wait to see whether or not that's going to happen. Businesses are banking on the fact that younger voters um, and younger people in general are actually going to be more approving of this, and they also don't want to be on the wrong side of history. So they don't want one of my colleagues in the history department one day writing a book that talks about how terrible those people are, and it damages <laughs> their brand forever. And so they're, they're taking it. It's a gamble. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're just, you know, this is sort of evidence of the flux that we see in terms of how the party is defining itself in its platform. Kevin, uh, you did, uh, you are releasing this week at the AJC uh, a po- poll results of a poll you conducted over a period of a number of days, uh, late April, early May. And you do have findings which say that uh, a majority of Georgians uh, agree that business should stay out of politics, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, and, and I think an important part about all of that is the huge partisan differences. So a majority, as you point out, thinks, thinks business should stay out of politics, but 89% of Republicans, it's almost unanimous uh, on the Republican side uh, to the question of do you support or oppose American companies using their public role? to influence political, cultural, or social change. And I do think Andre's right. If you're the CEO of um, a really significant company, I mean, of course, Delta uh, and Coke stand out in our community, um, they have to think about a lot of things. Uh, Their constituency, their employees, which, of course, are going to be generally younger than voters and how they may see things and the expectations they may they have of their companies. But Republicans, they have their own polls. I mean, they know, hey, they're also complaining about the all-star game, supporting the voter uh, bill, and opposing American companies um, getting involved. Those are winning issues, and they're going to keep talking about it. Um, so uh, I did n- make note of the fact, though, that as your reporters went out and, and talked to voters who had participated in the poll. And your poll is all registered voters, some 850, I think, plus. Um, I was was, uh, interested in one comment, particularly uh, by a person who said, the business I work for doesn't reflect my political thinking, and it doesn't necessarily reflect the political thinking of a lot of employees here at the company. And so it strikes me This notion that younger employees may be supportive of this sort of thing makes sense to me, but I I also wonder about, is there any legitimacy, Kevin, to a person saying, hey, I don't like what my my bosses are saying about politics right now? I mean, what kind of dissension can that lead to? I I think you're right, Bill. I think there's a really good chance that... uh inside a company, it's sort of split 50-50. And um, if you say something, 
maybe half the employees are not going to agree and disagree with you getting involved. And then the other half of employees expect you to say something and get involved. And so I think they're very tough calls uh, for leaders in corporate America right now and things they'd rather not be drawn into. But I think they have little choice in some cases, given the nature of the employees they have to recruit and retain, and given the nature, and in some cases, of the businesses that they're in. So, you know, it was it was interesting. I was reading this more for information and not for for prep for this show. But I was reading this article on the conversation. It was by a professor. I think it was M. K. Chen, who's at Indiana um, University, and it was looking at CEOs about how you know about how people are making decisions. And so, one, there are partisan differences. And so, when CEOs happen to be Democratic, they tend to do more kind of social justice types of, uh, of, of things. People are also driven by what folks are doing within their organizations, and so they do see a correlation between people making or CEOs speaking out on issues of concern when they do see their, uh, their employees making uh, donations, campaign donations based on this as well. So, you know, in some ways that is a reflection of what's going on in the organization, not that these organizations are not heterogeneous. Um, and, again, I think one of the things that's actually somewhat interesting about this is that, you know, while we still see the split that Kevin observed in his poll sort of amongst Georgia voters, uh, when you control for age, this is clearly being more dominated by, um, by, by older voters. And so, you know, these numbers and in terms of moving the Major League All-Star game were 53 percent opposed and then sort of the generic question um, about uh, whether businesses should stay out of businesses, 60% kind of support businesses staying out of these discussions. These numbers get a lot bigger when you're looking at people who are over 45 uh, versus people who are under 45. Um, and in particular, like the Major League Baseball game, like the lowest constituency or the a constituency that the constituencies that were most likely to support Major League Baseball's move at about 45% were those who were aged 18 to 34. So your prime workers and the people who are going to be moving into leadership positions later on. And then if we look at the same question, sort of the generic question, um, you know, again, the people who are more likely to support that, like this is, it's, this is actually a more monotonic relationship where we see kind of the steps kind of going up, is that the older you are, the less likely you were to support this. Um, and so what Major League Baseball, Coca-Cola, Delta, other corporations are taking a, a bet on is that uh, the people who are more likely to oppose this are aging out of sort of the consumer base, and this younger group has different types of expectations. It's not uniform. Um, there are a lot of, you know, younger people who oppose this, the majority of whom oppose this. But I think what they are seeing is what they suspect is going to be a trend or change where people are going to be more interested in that. And you don't want to get the same type of reputation that some brands have gotten in the past. Okay. Thank you for, for that. That's really valuable information. But Kevin, I'm interested in another aspect of this. Everything now is open warfare. I can imagine a time... When a Kevin McCarthy, um, facing criticism from a big corporation over election laws uh, that, uh, that criticize Republicans in states around the country, might ask for a meeting with the CEO of a big corporation and say, hey, can we talk about what's happening here? I think your concerns about this law are ill-advised. Let me tell you why it isn't this. In other words, there were times when people would work things out quietly. But now everything is open warfare. And it just strikes me 
that it it is so counterproductive that that um, we've t come to this point in our discourse. Yeah, I think that when people are uh, lobbying salvos on social media before a bill is actually written, <laughs> that does it, it does make it does two things. First of all, it it, it inflames everything, and it, I think it forces people in the positions that are difficult for them to modify. Yeah. And it's uh, Kevin their, Riley, it's you get for the political brand. I mean, you know, they're raising money off of it. And so right now they think they can offset the corporate donations with small dollar donations from riled up activists, riled up grassroots folks. And it's a question of will Andre, that actually be possible? Under Gillespie, you win the prize. That is exactly what's happening here. And I appreciate your saying it uh, so, so clearly for all of us. Uh, we got to get back to another pledge break. We'll do that now and be back with you in just a few minutes. Jesse Neiswanger, Amelia Brock, Sam Burmistaws appreciate the kind words uh, about the work that they do to keep Political Rewind moving forward. Um, Kevin Riley is with us today, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and so is Professor Andrew Gillespie of Emory University. And by the way, we're not dumb. Andrew Gillespie is by far one of the most uh, talked about and favorite panelists who come on the show occasionally. And so to have you on during a pledge drive, Andra, is smarter than you might think we are. We're grateful that you are able to occasionally join us, Andra. Um, let me, in fact, while you've got the, while I've got the ball in your corner, Andra, let me, this fight in, in, in the House, the, in the minority conference of the House, where Liz Cheney is about to be stripped of her leadership role because she continues to criticize uh, Donald Trump for his assertions that the election was a fraud, uh, where she continues to criticize him because she insists that he was responsible for the insurrection, and now she is about to be punished and replaced, most likely, by Elise Stefanik. And here's the thing that I find interesting about this, Andra. Yesterday... President Biden was asked to comment on this war that's going on right now in the Republican conference. And he said, it's terrible because we need a strong Republican Party. And that by itself is a fascinating comment because it isn't just a war in the Republican Party. It has an impact on how we uh, uh, work as a two-party system in this country, yes? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, there's some people who would love for us to have a multi-party system. Our first past the post-election system um, doesn't structurally sort of, you know, make that easy. So we do have what we have. Um, and, uh, you know, we need a robust two-party system. We don't need one-party rule. Like, that's not, that's not helpful, even if you like that one party. Um, so you want both parties to be strong. You want them uh, to be able to be flexible. You want people to be able to vote their conscience, to be able to kind of, you know, take a trusty form of leadership at some period um, of time. And Liz Cheney is trying to do that. And Liz Cheney's eye is beyond 2022 or 2024. Um, and I think regardless of whether or not you agree with her substantive policy positions, she deserves a profile and courage for what she is doing. Um, and she's getting embattled for it. And it seems to be that she's willing to count the cost in the short term in order to be on the right side of history um, in the long term. And so what, you know, is, 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 is really disturbing about this is that her colleagues aren't letting her 
sort of have this position, um, which seems to be, you know, not only reasonable, it seems to be fact-based. Joe Biden won the election. Um, you know, there wasn't massive voter fraud. Um, and, you know, just the idea that it looks like people are willing to play Republican women who are still very few and far between in terms of uh, congressional membership against each other. Um, you know, in this particular instance is, is, is something that is, is, is really disturbing. You know, if, if Elise Stefanik were, were uh, sitting right in front of me, I would remind her of, about what happened um, on ESPN when Jamel Hill, you know, tweeted out something very mm. controversial, even though it wasn't controversial to me that, uh, that Donald Trump was a racist and, and she got suspended. And they actually tried to uh, replace her that night so that she had been pulled off the air with another black female host. Um, Elle Duncan, who many of us remember from here, she's a traffic reporter at, at, at uh, 11 Alive in Atlanta, and Elle wouldn't do it that day, sort of out of a sense of solidarity and out of a sense of not getting played. And I don't know, you know, what Stefanik is up to, but I was like, as soon as I saw it, it was like, yeah, there's a certain code about, like, when you see some really messed up stuff going on based on identity <laughs> to not play into it. And so it is, uh, you know, it was, it was, that was, that's been really disheartening to watch as well. Kevin Riley, sorry, uh, Kevin Riley, here's what Dan Balls, uh, chief correspondent of the Washington Post, wrote in his lead to his analysis yesterday. The growing effort to remove Representative Liz Cheney from the third-ranking Republican leadership position in the House further accelerates her party's full capitulation to Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election. The move against Cheney is a sign of political cowardice. While shocking, it is not surprising for a party that has lost its way. Strong comments from Dan Balls. Yeah, certainly. And I would encourage uh, listeners uh, to, find, you know, Liz Cheney wrote a very, I would say, very heartfelt uh, piece in the Washington Post that you can find online. And, and it lets you it lets you hear directly from her about what she sees, believes and, and thinks about all this. And I do think, Bill, this represents uh, I would I would characterize what's going on with Republicans as presenting two two challenges, one very big and one very small that you and I definitely deal with every day. The first the big one is, you know, the president's right. We need a Republican Party. There needs to be a really good debate about this, say, this infrastructure bill and the right way to do it and the right way to spend this money if we're going to do it. And instead, because we have this battle going on, it's just no to everything, which which doesn't make sense. Right. And then, I, you know, we've dealt with it on the show. Uh, it's a struggle with the newspaper. I mean, the idea that 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 there's a growing segment of Republicans who insist that the election was fraudulent. I mean, it, it, you just, there's nowhere to go with a reasonable, balanced other point of view on a lot of issues. Because if someone's going to take that position, which is at, at least in our state been disproven at, at least three times, it just makes it hard to have reasonable political discourse. I mean, how do you invite someone on this show who insists that that's true when we know it's not? That, that's a really excellent point and one we struggled with for a long time. And what we've ended up having to do is say, sorry, we really just can't have people come on the, on the show who perpetuate falsehoods. In this case, it happens to be Republicans. But when Democrats do it, we have to take uh, the same position. Andre, here's what's interesting. So I haven't followed Elise Stefanik's career very closely. Um, obviously, she started coming to the public's attention back during the impeachment hearings. Um, uh, she 
Uh, she's from upstate New York. She has a she has a less conservative voting record than does Liz Cheney. But she has bought the Trump line or lie uh, completely. And and in fact, Andra, uh, in doing some research on her, here's a statement that I found she made in the aftermath of the election. She said that in Fulton County, Georgia alone, there were 140,000 votes cast by underage people and others who had no legal right to cast ballots. Now, what do you do, speaking of what Kevin Riley was saying, with someone who perpetuates such an absurd lie? I think the tough thing about this is that, you know, I have no empirical proof of this, but based on what I know about her profile, in my heart of hearts, I know she knows that that's not true. Right. And I think that that's the thing that I think people are bothered by, that this looks like a purely instrumental move to, you know, sort of, you know, make a name for herself. So Elise Stefanik is, is, is really interesting. When she was elected, she was the youngest woman who had ever been elected uh, to Congress. Um, and so um, and she's still actually in her early 30s. And so she's still pretty young. Um, and so they have tried to kind of cast her or frame her as the AOC of, of the right. Right. So you look at somebody who's young, intelligent and female. Um, and she's capitalizing on that. So, like, especially during the Intelligence Committee hearings, you know, with respect to uh, the impeachment, um, when Adam Schiff did something that was perceived, that could have been perceived as, as, as mildly sexist, right, Republicans jumped on it. And so she's making the front page, uh, you know, of the Fox News website. So she is, you know, taking advantage of opportunities and she's really, really smart. Um, and so she saw this as an opportunity, as I believe she's in her fourth term, to move, you know, into a position, you know, of leadership. And, you know, on one hand, you might not be mad at somebody for being ambitious, but, you know, there's a fine line between ambition and instrumentality here. Um, and so I think the long-term question is, one, can she live with herself? And then, two, is this ultimately going to pay off in the long term, especially given the fact that she is in a pretty swingy district in upstate New York? Uh, Kevin, um, Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party. Uh, as evidenced by what's happening right now in the House conference, is still uh, uh, involatile. I mean, he is in complete control, and Republicans seem willing to do, both here in Georgia and nationally, uh, whatever it takes to please him. Donald Trump put out a statement on Monday in which he supported uh, Elise Stefanik and attacked Liz Cheney. Uh, Here's just a little bit of it. Quote, Liz Cheney is a warmongering fool who has no business in Republican Party leadership. We want leaders who believe in the Make America Great Again movement. Um, so, Kevin, I, I thought about that statement in light of the Facebook uh, Oversight Board decision yesterday that Facebook had a right to continue suspending Trump's account for another six months. Because when I saw this remark, Liz Cheney is a warmongering fool, it reminded me how nice it is to not have to put up with that kind of language on Twitter, on Facebook, coming from the former president of the United States. Yeah, things sure have changed in terms of uh, the sort of statements we get from the current president and, you know, tone and language. Um, I mean, think about that, Uh, a warmongering fool. I mean, wow, you know, that's, um, let's just agree, that's at least a little over the top. Um, for what's going on here. And uh, it just seems as if there is the, the rhetoric, there is no boundary anymore on how far people will go and what's okay to say. And um, 
I, you know, I mean, Liz Cheney certainly represents a political point of view to which many, with which many people would disagree. But it is a political point of view that, and I think she makes this point in her post piece, that you can disagree with, but you can certainly understand, and it which uh, gives her a framework within which she will support or not support certain things because of what she believes is her philosophy. Um, Sam Burmistos, I'm not sure that uh, if we put up a link to that Liz Cheney opinion piece, people can get past the paywall, but we can try it. The Washington Post does have a pretty strong paywall, but maybe there's maybe we can figure out a way to get it out there for people to read because it is a very um, interesting uh, read. Um, Andre Gillespie, let me turn uh, with just the last couple of minutes we have here to uh, what's happening with the Raphael Warnock Senate race. Um, Republicans uh, have been accused of, well, accused is the wrong word. It has been pointed out that there has been no major contender who has been willing to come forward to challenge Raphael Warnock, uh, who is up for re-election again next year. Now, that's starting to change. There are people who are making plans to come forward. But is, is Raphael Warnock in a very strong position from your point of view, to hold that seat? Because people like a Chris Carr are not quite sure what the landscape is like for Republicans going into a race like that a year from now? Well, I mean, I think the fundamentals are Georgia's political landscape looks different. And so there are more Republicans who are turning out, more Democrats, excuse me, who are turning out to vote. And so uh, Republicans have to assume that they aren't going to win anything in a cakewalk, that whatever happens, the results are going to be pretty narrow. Um, Warnock is in a better position than Leffler in terms of incumbency advantage, which is still going to be you know, pretty scant for this particular election, but at least he's been elected before, unlike Kelly Leffler was at this point last year. So you know, that certainly works in his favor, but I think it's going to be hard. And, I mean, you know, and obviously, you know, the elephant in the room is whether or not Herschel Walker is going to run. So he brings great name identification. He will likely have the support of Donald Trump. Um, he's a novice candidate. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it's still a big risk in, in putting bets on Herschel Walker. But I think the, the goal or, or the aim is that he, based on his football career, will excite a lot of middle-aged Republican men to turn out to vote. And that might actually help Republicans kind of forge ahead in this particular race and race is constant. And so this isn't quite Barack Obama and Alan Keyes in 2004 in Illinois. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think we also do need to remember Herschel Walker is a novice candidate, right, who's going to look really different. Kevin Riley, let's face it, as journalists, a Herschel, uh, Herschel Walker Senate race would make for great copy for all of us. <laughs> Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, I, I wonder if uh, he'll, he'll jump in. But if he does, um, it'll just make Georgia more interesting. Yeah, all right. Uh, Kevin Riley, you get the last word in today's show. Uh, thank you, Kevin, for your participation every week on the show. Professor Gillespie, you know we love having you here as well. We are out of time today. We're going to send you back to our pledge team. We're back again uh, tomorrow with another show. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear your mask. I still see people who don't put it above the nose. Would you please wear it over your nose? And if you haven't been vaccinated, uh, please get a vaccine as soon as possible. See you all tomorrow.